Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There's a park in Berkeley nearby where I used to live. It's a quiet neighborhood. Nice, sweet little Willard Park with a grassy field and at one end an enclosed playground for the little kids. And it's all sandy so no one can hurt themselves. Got a slide. For many kids, this is their very first playground. And these kids, the kids that come here after their nap, they're each other's very first playmates. On several afternoons with some snacks, some juice boxes, I'd load up the double stroller, stop by on the way to get my then three-year-old daughter's friend, Julia, and we roll down to the park, with both of them giggling at each other the whole way, telling each other their little three-year-old secrets. As soon as we get to the park, they jump out and run to the play area, top speed, to see which of their friends is here today. And there's this boy, sandy-haired, same age as them. His mom must have been on my schedule because he was often there at the same time. And they'd all give each other little kid hugs. The girls would say hello. And he'd say hi right back. Then he'd turn and tell the swings that the girls, they're here now. Later on, he might warn the slide that when he got on it, that he didn't want to go too fast because he didn't want to get hurt. And one day, when the girls asked him to play tag, he said, okay. He took a coin out of his pocket, placed it carefully on the sand, and told the sand, saying, don't lose this quarter because my grandmama gave me this quarter, so I'm going to keep it right here now because I'm going to go play tag. But it better be right here when I get back. And on the way home that afternoon in the stroller, the girls, they asked me if things that are not people can hear what they say. Hmm. Well, what do you think? They looked at each other and whispered amongst themselves. And Julia, the spokesperson, she says, we think that maybe stuff can hear us if the stuff has people in it. Hmm. Makes sense to me. Get yourself some hot chocolate. Be sure to grab a blanket. Snapchat with Polly presents The Stormy Night.
again in the way back machine. Set to 1977, Kathy Bolta. She thinks she's found the perfect new home for her and her kids. Quaint little cabin in the middle of the beautiful redwood forest. And to Kathy, it seems like paradise. But you already know better. Spoon. in Southern California and I'm going through a divorce. I have two small children that I'm trying to learn how to be a single parent to. I'm pretty loaded up with stress, so I'm really wanting a change in my life. My soon-to-be ex, he takes a little trip up to Northern California And when he got back from his vacation, he brought me uh, a little stack of local magazines, local newspapers. I was thumbing through and I came across a little advertisement in the classified section. Cabin in the Redwood Forest, free to family with children, for reciprocities. I think this is just perfect. I call the number and this woman named Ethel answers the phone. And she explains to me that her son, she needs someone to help drive him in and out of the forest to go to public school because Ethel is totally blind. Ethel tells me that this little cabin, she tells me that it has no electricity. We have to chop our wood, cook on a wood stove. We'll have a little propane refrigerator, but it's it's really back to the land kind of living. She's a little hesitant though to say yes to me because I'm just a single parent with two kids, a four-year-old and an eight-year-old, and she doesn't think that I can handle the task. And quite frankly, I'm not sure I'm up to the task either, but I want this so bad that I talk both myself and her into giving me a chance. And so she does. We put everything that we were taking with us into the U-Haul and we drove up to North Spur. It's a really small little cabin, just four rooms, a living room, which is also the kitchen and the dining room, two little bedrooms and a bathroom. And it's surrounded by redwood trees. Because we moved in in the summertime, we had our days and our nights free. My kids and I, got to do a lot of walking through the forest. We have a a Dalmatian dog, so we got to take our dog Molly through the forest, through all of these wonderful creeks and streams. 
There's no sound except the beautiful whisperings of the forest. It seemed like heaven. So there are only about six or eight families that live in this big valley of North Spur. And one of the people that lives there, her name is Mary. I met Mary through Ethel, and she begins to tell me about Ethel. She told me that Ethel was quite the character, that she was an old hippie from the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. She told me that there was one time when Ethel had a pet anteater in her apartment in San Francisco. And she also told me that everyone who knew Ethel knew her to be a very gifted psychic. One afternoon, I'm reading my book and Molly scratches at the door And I open the door to let her out, and I just let her play in the forest to her heart's content. And when she's ready to come in, she scratches at the outer side of the door so that I open the door and let her in. I happen to be in the kitchen at the kitchen sink. I open the door because I'm right there. But Molly's not there. I step out onto the porch and I look around, and I see her standing on the other side of the stream which is about, oh, maybe 200 yards from our front door. She's looking right at me, and then she looks immediately to the left. And then she looks back at me, and she looks to the left, like she was focusing on something and then back to me so quickly. She looks back at me again, and then she runs as fast as she can to get back into the house. I thought she must be afraid of something. I didn't know what had scratched at the door. And I didn't know if Molly was reacting to some wildlife that was out there or what, but I didn't see anything, so it was really confusing to me. So even living in the forest, in the middle of the forest, I have to admit I'm a bit of a neat freak. So I like things in their place. I like to be organized because it helps me function in my life, in my crazy little life as a as a single mom. So I always like to have things in their place so that I can find them easily. Well, I start finding things out of place. I find the brush that I brush my daughter's hair with every morning in a different room. I find my son's bed slippers in my bedroom. And I've taught my kids to put things back where they belong, too, so it seemed unlikely that they were moving things, but we were in a new environment, so I thought, well, you know, maybe things are just being moved around that weren't being moved around before. So one of our nightly rituals is to read books together. And now that we live here in the Redwood Forest, we have to read these books by the light of kerosene lamps. So we sit down to read read our book, and I light the lamp. And I'm reading a story to them, and we're all enjoying the story. And all of a sudden, 
the light goes out. It becomes pitch black. There are giant redwood trees all around my little cabin. There's no moon that comes through. There's no stars that twinkle through the windows. It's completely dark. And I know I have to light the lamp again, so I do it quickly and the lamp comes back on. And then after a while, it goes out again. And so I light it again. I've checked the wick, I've checked the oil, everything is fine, it's functioning perfectly well. The room was very still, there was no breeze in the room, no fan, no nothing like that. I don't know why it's going out. So every couple of nights, this happens again. We settle in for our ritual of bedtime and the light goes out again. It's a little frustrating and it's really confusing because I switched out the lamps and every lamp that we light to sit down and read our bedtime stories does the same thing. It's a little bit of a joke to us now. Just like any kid, my kids love ghost stories. So my kids and I start to joke about having a ghost in the house that's blowing out the lamp. You know, the kids go, "Ah, it went out again, you know, and we have a little fun like it's Halloween in our bedroom. I'm getting dinner ready one night and I, I go to get plates out. We have open cupboards where our plates sit. And the plates are stacked up. And they happen to be a little odd-shaped because they're, they're dinner plates that I made in a ceramics class at college. And I noticed that the plates are making an odd shadow in the cupboard. And the shadow that they're making is the shadow of the, a silhouette of a man. It's just his head, and it looks just like a real man was standing there and making a shadow on the wall. This man has a rather large sort of protruding forehead and a rather large sort of protruding nose, and then his chin is a little recessed, and he appears to have a bald head. He's very distinctive looking. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. It looks like a a man in in my cupboard. I didn't really think much of it. It it just seemed like um, it was a trick of the light or a trick of the shadow. So a little later that evening, I take my kids in and put, put them in the bath for the evening to get them all ready for bed. And they're having their fun in the bath, and I'm sitting in there with them. I'm looking around a little bit in the bathroom and I see the same silhouette of that man on the wall in the bathroom. This time, it's being made by a stack of towels that's sitting on the cabinet. I think this is really curious. That really seems like the exact same silhouette that I saw in my kitchen just an hour ago. Over the next days and even weeks, this same silhouette of this same man started appearing in all kinds of places in our cabin. 
Of course, the first thing I thought was that my eyes were playing tricks on me. It always seemed to be made by something that was real in the room, like a stack of books or some dishes or some towels. But as I kept seeing it, it became harder and harder to convince myself that this was just a coincidence. But I don't say anything to the kids. I don't want to scare them or uh, make them freak out at all. But then one day, uh, I'm in the kitchen, I'm at the kitchen sink, I'm scrubbing some vegetables, and my son says, Look, Mom, looks like a man on the wall. And I turn around and look at the shadow that's being made by the Franklin stove. This shadow is the exact silhouette that I've been seeing around every part of this cabin. And I say, oh my gosh, Zachary, it is a man. It is a man on the wall. I don't tell him just then that I've seen it too, but a little later, a few days later, we all started seeing it everywhere, inside of our cabin and outside in the woods in the shadows that were made by the ferns and the wild iris that grew in the forest. And that's when I began to realize that it's not just a coincidence. There must be something going on in this house. Snap returns. Kathy uncovers far, far more than she bargained for when Snap Judgment, the Stormy Night episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. The stormy night episode. Now, just before the break, Kathy felt the presence in the house and started to realize that something strange this way comes. Snap judgment. So in the main room, we do have one propane lamp. And that propane lamp is installed on the ceiling. And... The way you light a propane lamp is very different than the way you light a kerosene lamp. You have to turn on the propane. You have to put the the match to the propane gas and it it, it ignites, you know, like a like a little tiny mini explosion. And now the lamp is lit and it creates a bright light, a really bright light in the room. So, one night It was time for bed. Kids had had their baths. They were in their jammies. They were in their beds. I went to bed. The house is completely black because all the lights are off. And at about two o'clock in the morning, I wake up because the house is bright. The main room is bright. I walk in there and someone has lit the propane lamp. 
I didn't light it. My kids are too little to light it. They don't know how to light it. And even if they did know how to light it, they would have had to put a chair on top of the table to reach that lamp. I feel so freaked out. My breath caught in my throat. I looked around to see if anybody was in there. I was even afraid to walk into my own kid's bedroom, even though I wanted to go in there and make sure that they were okay. I take a deep breath and I walk in to make sure that my kids are okay. I see that they're sound asleep in their beds and I kind of look around a little bit in the house wondering, did somebody come into my house? But we live way deep in the middle of the Wedwood Forest. There's nobody out there. I walked back into the main room and I turned off the lamp. And then I went back into my own bed and thoughts were racing 100 miles an hour. What caused this? I was trying to explain it to myself logically. But of course, I couldn't come up with anything that was a logical explanation. I got up a couple of other times to go in and make sure that the kids were okay. I thought about scooping them up and bringing them into my bed with me. But I didn't want to wake them up. I didn't want to frighten them. And so I just went back to my bed again and didn't really sleep until morning. So when I woke up the next day, I was still a little freaked out and I decided that I wanted to talk to Ethel about this. I'd heard all these stories about Ethel being so psychic. I thought maybe she could help me figure out what was going on in my little cabin. So I walk over to her house. Takes me a little while to get there. She invites me into her living room. When we sit down by her big stone fireplace. And I tell her about what's been happening in the cabin. And I tell her I'm frightened. She tells me that... What I'm experiencing and what I'm seeing is Evan, the old logger that used to live in our cabin, that used to live on this property. Apparently she knew about Evan because she had done some research about the land when she moved into it several years back. She said, this is your space now. And so if you're freaked out by this, You can just ask him to leave. I'll give you a ritual, and you can ask him to leave. Honestly, it made me feel, I don't know, a little special that the kids and I had this ghost living in the house with us, this ghost of Evan. I don't know that a lot of people get to have this experience So I decide that I'm not going to ask him to leave. Nothing that he had done so far was too out of line. And as long as he kept it within the same parameters that he was keeping it in now, I was okay with that. Ethel has invited me over to her home anytime I want to go. 
to let myself in and play the piano. One afternoon, Ethel and Ted are in town with the kids and I go over to play the piano. And I go into the house, I sit down at the piano, I started playing the Moonlight Sonata. As I'm playing, all of a sudden, I hear this ding ding on the treble end, on the high end of the piano. And then I hear on the bass side of the piano, on the left hand side, I hear this ding ding. And I look over and the key's going down and, and then it's released, just like someone is playing it. Someone's put their finger on it. It's like someone is sitting at the piano with me, interrupting my playing. I pulled my hands away and put them at my chest and just sat there looking at the keyboard. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel alone anymore. I felt the presence of another person sitting right next to me. I was scared shitless. I had chills from head to toe. It was like adrenaline shot through my body. I didn't want to wait for any more. I immediately get up and I walk over to the door, which is very close to the piano. I open the door. I step out onto the porch and I pull the door to close it and it won't close behind me. It's as though someone is blocking the door. I try to close it several times and it's like there's a body in the door blocking the door and it won't close, but I can't see anything there. Finally, at about the fourth or fifth try, it closes and I jammed back to my little cabin. And I don't even look behind me to see if there's anyone following me. I just want to get out of there. This felt scarier than the other things that we'd been through because everything else was distant, you know? It wasn't something that was potentially sitting right next to me, potentially touching me. Maybe Evan knew that I was instructed to have him leave the cabin and I chose not to. Maybe he's choosing to escalate what he's doing. It just felt like it was getting closer and more intimate and a little more scary. I decide I want to get a pony for my daughter because uh, she had a pony when we lived in Southern California and she was a good little rider and I wanted to get her another pony. So I looked um, in the classified and I found a pony, a little Welsh pony named Scruffy. So we bring Scruffy back to the property, back to the land, back to the valley, and we need to build a corral for Scruffy. So we get the wood together and we build the corral. And then I realized that we need to build the gate for the corral. And that's a little bit more complicated. But I remember that we have a gate in the back of the property, in the back behind our cabin. And this gate isn't attached to anything. It looks very old, very ancient. It's got 
ferns and moss growing on it. It looks like it had something certainly attached to it many years ago, but right now it's just a gate standing out in the middle of nowhere. So I think this is perfect. So my friends and I dig the gate up, we take it to the corral, we attach it to the corral, and now Scruffy has a proper uh, place for him to call home. So we're all done building the corral, moving the gate. We feel very satisfied. My friends go home. My kids and I go back into the cabin. You know, we take our baths. We get snuggied in and ready for bed. And all of a sudden then we start to hear a lot of wind, a lot of really heavy, loud wind. And the rain starts. It had not been a rainy day before. It had been a little overcast, but there was really no sign of rain. And it got heavier and heavier and heavier. And and the rain got so heavy that it started knocking branches off of the big redwoods. And the branches were crashing down on the ground. And there was thunder. We even saw lightning down in the depths of the forest where it was usually really black. And we were all pretty frightened and we were huddled together because we were just afraid. It sounded like a big redwood could come crashing through the bedroom window at any moment. So we were up most of the night and In the wee hours of the morning, the storm begins to die down and goes away. And we get a little bit of sleep when it finally gets quiet. So the next morning, we're eager to go outside and see what's happened out there. So with my kids, Following behind, I walk out, and I walk over to where we built the corral. Thank goodness Scruffy was just fine. He actually didn't want to go into the corral the night before, so he huddled in next to the kitchen where he liked to sleep. So he actually walked with us down to look at the corral. I see that There are big tree branches that have fallen down. And when I get to the corral, I see that it's completely destroyed. The trees, the branches have fallen on all of the corral and it's smashed to smithereens. There's nothing left of it. But the only thing that's still standing is the gate. The gate is perfectly intact. It hasn't been hit by anything. And as I'm standing there looking at this destruction, Ethel and Ted drive up the driveway. Ethel and Ted had been out of the valleys for the weekend. They had gone into the city, into San Francisco, to spend the weekend. And now they 
come back. They drive up into the land and Ethel gets out of the truck and walks directly over to me. And she says, Kathy, did you move the gate? I was so shocked. How would she know that I moved the gate? She's blind. She couldn't have seen that I moved the gate, nor could Ted have seen that I moved the gate because the view was blocked by the redwood trees. And yet she knew. And I said, yeah, I moved the gate. She said, you have to put it back immediately. That was Evan's gate, and he did not like it that you moved it. We put the gate back. We build a new gate. We build a new corral. But now I'm afraid of Evan. After the storm, I begin to realize what Evan is capable of. I began to think that there could be a possibility that someone could get hurt. So within the next day or two, the kids were off with Ethel and Ted at school in town. I was alone in the valley again. So I sit down in the middle of of our main room and I put each of these 10 candles in a circle around me and I light them all and I begin to talk to Evan and I say to him, Evan, I realize that this was once your physical space but it's my physical space now. It's my space and the space of my children. And for a while it was okay to share this space with you, but now you're beginning to scare us a little bit. And so I need to ask you to leave. We didn't have any occurrences after that day. Our kerosene lamps are no longer being blown out. We don't see Evan's face on our walls anymore. The things that we're looking for haven't been moved. I felt like there was a big weight that had been lifted from my shoulders. It felt safe in our house again. So when I moved out into this redwood forest, I, I really wanted to learn more independence and I learned how to be my own plumber and I learned how to chop wood, I learned how to grow vegetables and all of that was empowering. But none of it was as empowering as it was when I was able to ask Evan to leave and he actually did. One day, I'm in my bathroom, and I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm looking out the window, kind of space, doing my morning routine, and I see those ferns on the forest floor being depressed, as though there's something 
someone walking through them like there are footsteps depressing the ferns. And I'm safe in my cabin, but I'm looking out at this and I'm thinking, that's Evan. I was glad to see what I thought was Evan, still kind of hanging around, but not bothering us. It's almost like, okay, we have an understanding now. You can still hang around the property, just don't come in my home. That story comes to us from our sister podcast, Spooked, made in the dark of night. And if you want more supernatural storytelling from Spooked, you can listen on any podcast platform. When we return, understand there's something under the bed. For real, when the Stormy Night episode continues, stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the Stormy Night episode. We're featuring tales from things that go bump in the night and next up, we've saved you the very best seat in the house where the amazing Shane Koizan takes the Snap Judgment live stage with the story about the monster hiding underneath his bed. Snap Judgment, live. Our next guest is Canada's voice of a new generation. I'm so thrilled and delighted to bring him out to the Snap Judgment stage, Mr. Shane Koizan. I was raised by my grandparents. Now, the three things you need to know about my granddad are number one, and probably most important, he had an intense love for beef jerky. Two, he had the kind of temper that could be likened to a levee bursting apart on a hot, dry day. A cachet of anger stored away for any given moment on any given day. My grandmother used to say he was one half volcano and one half hurricane, a handful of excuses and a gut full of pain. And because of this, we come to number three. My granddad had a way with monsters. As a child, I slept in a bedroom full of them. A closet stuffed with long-legged demons who could make it from one end of the room to the other in a single step. My strep throat silence was born from night terrors. When screaming was not enough, so I instead kicked the wall. 
Drew my first remembered breath the moment I heard thunder storm down the hall, then burst through my door like a war on its way to a peace protest. My granddad would rest his hands on his hips, let his fingertips grip his boxers and lift them up past his waist. Standing like a superhero in the doorway, he would split the night with a whisper and say, All right, you mother I swear to Christ, I will turn on a light. Never has any monster ever heard a battle cry more terrifying than I will turn on a light. And every night for more than four years, my granddad took boogeymen by the ears and threw them out on their asses. Dragged the carcasses of dead monsters out of my room Grabbed a broom and swept what was left of my nightmares into a dustpan Emptied them into a trash can Then turned around to say Sweet dreams, my boy Be down the hall if you need me We were sidekicks I'd sound the alert And my granddad would put the hurt on whatever was hiding under my bed Or lurking in my closet he deposited his foot so deep into the asses of gargoyles that when they finally turned back into stone, he could wear them as platform boots to a KISS concert. My granddad used to wear a red polo shirt to bed. He said it used to be white. But one night when I was four, he busted down my bedroom door and had to kick some ass because I was screaming. Now he wears it as a warning. Teaching nighttime, there are some things far worse than morning. A night terror differs from a nightmare in that the dreamer will awake and take terror with them back into consciousness. Add to this the fact that the dreamer rarely recalls what they dreamt, and that any attempt to wake them usually ends unsuccessfully. I know this now. But think constantly how my granddad had to just stand there, wait for it to end, and believe everything was going to be okay. How the following day he'd pretend not to be tired. An alarm clock wired into fears I could not recall. He'd wake and thunder down the hall doing the very best he could. He'd be there. An anchor pulling me back from the somewhere I could not escape. As a child I learned not every hero wears a cape. Not everyone gets a ticker tape parade just for having patience. Not everyone has the strength needed to stand there, wait for it to end and believe everything's going to be okay. Not everyone has the courage to say or do nothing when a child is screaming, dreaming of eternity in a room with no doors, no floors to keep you from falling further into panic. Each one small fear suddenly titanic in its implications, situations so far beyond grotesque, I would have amputated my own imagination just to make them stop. But at the end of each one, he'd be there. And he'd say, close your eyes. I'm going to turn on a light. He'd invite me back to consciousness with a tired smile. The next day, he would sit on the sofa before dinner and say, I just need to rest my eyes. My quest to end night terrors was born from the night he ended up falling asleep at the wheel and driving full speed into a snowbank. 
my one-man think tank kicked into overdrive. And for five nights in a row, my granddad slept soundly. Free from worry, we watched the light return to his eyes as if it had just come back from some long vacation. But on night number six, the kicks against the bedroom wall made thunder storm down the hall once more. He stood in the doorway, ready to wage war, ready to restore light to darkness, to dismiss shadows, to land heavy-handed blows, Muhammad Ali combos that would give monsters pause to reconsider the options. Get up or stay down. Stay down. That night, he was hungry for a first-round knockout. He was about to go through his usual checklist of monster hiding spots when I said, no, it's okay. Go back to bed. With renewed enthusiasm, he looked at me and said, nonsense. These have to pay. <laughs> and I remember the way he dropped to his knees, stuck his head under my bed and said, what is all of my beef jerky doing under here? I explained to him my not-so-brilliant plan. I said, I thought if I kept them fed, they'd leave me alone and you could get a good night's sleep. Slow but deep, his lips crept across his face, then cracked open into laughter. After a childhood of expecting only anger, he laid down on the ground, his lungs kicking at his chest. Every suppressed joy suddenly brought to the surface... This is the first time I can recall hearing my granddad laugh. Some thoughts are kept in closets, hanging next to skeletons and boogeymen. Sometimes when we believe in monsters, they take up residence under our beds. Our heads fill with the dread needed to keep them fed. We tread our own fear because we somehow thought it was better off being kept secret. Which comes no surprise that some hearts are like dark bedrooms. Tombs that we allowed ourselves to shut because we thought that way, everything will be alright. I think about my granddad's laugh. I think often about that night. About how some people are waiting for people like us to slide our hands against their walls and say, close your eyes, I'm going to turn on a light. Big, big love to Shane Cloizan for that beautiful piece. Original music by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex Mandel and the Snap Players, Tim Frick and David Brandt, performed at Snap Judgment Live in L.A. Shane Cloizan, he's an award-winning Canadian poet, author, performer, TED Talk speaker, who's recently gotten back on tour after a brief hiatus. And if you have a chance to see Shane live, you're really going to want to do that. 
a video, an incredible video of this performance along with all things shame will be on our website, snapjudgment.org. This episode is produced by the team that speaks to everyone who will listen. Everyone except for Mark Ristich. He talks to everyone who will not listen. There's Anna Sussman, our chief spookster is Eliza Smith, Chris Hambrick, Annie Nguyen, Lauren Newsom, Lindsay Gorio, Teo Dakot, Davey Kim, Marissa Dodge, Zoe Frigno, Tiffany DeLiza, Ann Ford, and Doug Stewart. The spook theme song is by Pat Masini Miller. My name is Gun Washington, and this, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could see a child talking to a lamppost and decide, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over somewhere else and mind my own business. That's what I'm going to do. And you would still, even then, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is P.R. 